Advent. It's marvelous, isn't it? It's a season of pregnant anticipation, counting down the weeks to the first advent of Christ at Christmas, and a reminder that we yet await a second advent of Christ when he will come to make all things right. It's also a season which holds intention that waiting, longing for Christ's return, and also receiving smaller advents in between, though we see through a mirror dimly. Advent is a beautiful, yet subdued season, with rich blues and purples, the colors of royalty and repentance. It's a season which names the darkness, yet refuses to succumb to it. As we light one more candle each week, pronouncing the good news that Isaiah prophesied, the people walking in darkness have seen a marvelous light. In this second week of Advent, we are reminded of one who came before Jesus, one who prepared the way for him. We're reminded of none other than John the Baptist. He's the one Matthew describes clad in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, eating the usual food of locusts and wild honey. He is the one without social graces who yells at the people who come to hear him that they are a brood of vipers, a bunch of snakes. He's the one who, even though he's Jesus' cousin, doesn't recognize that Jesus is the Messiah because Jesus doesn't quite fit into the schema that John has of what the Messiah looks like. John seems kind of out of touch, don't you think? Like that guy on the Guy Cook commercial who lives under a rock? They look kind of similar. John has become frankly, in my mind, a cartoon character, like this guy who lived under the rock. And so he's easy to dismiss. Let's dismiss John because it's all about Jesus. He's eccentric, and he gets killed off just as soon as he's introduced in both the Gospels of Mark and Luke. And John yet prepares the way for Jesus, even though he's unsure if Jesus is the one he's preparing the way for. John's eccentric, and he doesn't quite get it, but Luke wants us to pay attention. He doesn't want us to dismiss John because John is the one to prepare the way for him, prepare the way for the Lord. He is essential to the story of Jesus, and and it's upon John that we will focus our attention this morning. Luke sets the scene for John by naming the powers that be. Tiberius Caesar is in his 15th year of his reign over the entire Roman Empire. Pontius Pilate, who later puts Jesus to death, is the governor of Judea. Herod is the tetrarch of Galilee, who later corroborates with Pilate to put Jesus to death. Herod's brother Philip and Lysanias are the other two tetrarchs. And then finally, Annas and Caiaphas are high priests at this time. Caiaphas also plays a part in Jesus' passion. Luke names seven leaders in these two verses of chapter 3. Each each of these seven has their own particular role and governance, but together they comprise everything, the secular and the religious. These are the people in charge. And piercing through this dense politico-religious landscape, 
the word of God comes. But it doesn't come to those leaders, not even to the religious ones. It comes to John, the miracle child of Zechariah, and it comes in the wilderness. God's word is on the move, and it's not to those in power or in the hustle and bustle of city life. God's word comes in the lonely wilderness to John. The wilderness is a place the people of God know all too well. It's the place of testing and refining, the place no one chooses to be. As we remember Israel's journey through the wilderness, which took 40 years, it seemed nearly endless. Yet, as God's people finally crossed over to the promised land, they crossed the Jordan River. And as Luke sets the scene for John, he not only pits John against all of the leaders of the land, but he begins his story in the wilderness and right around the Jordan River. So Luke is about to do something big. The word of God comes to John And John is reminding God's people of the exodus and of the promised land. God is doing something big, and John is preparing them for it. The ho-hum days are behind us. A new era has dawned, and this calls for dramatic action. So John doesn't simply call them to confess or to purify their hands. No, he calls for a complete immersion a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John did something that was not done in his day. Baptisms were reserved for Jewish converts, not for those who had already been Jews. And John knew that, yet he did it anyway, because God's people did not pursue the things of God. They needed to confess. They needed to be baptized and to be forgiven. Then Luke goes on to write that John is the fulfillment of a prophecy from hundreds of years ago from Isaiah. He is the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. And all people will see the salvation of God. So John is not just some crazy man who lives under a rock. He is the one who has received the word of God and has been given the spirit to turn hearts and prepare the way for the Lord. In Advent, we hear the language of preparing the way for the Lord, and we have some notions of what that means. To us, that means getting out our Advent wreaths and devotionals, coming to worship, trying not to be too crazy with our Christmas shopping and social calendars, trying to be peaceful and calm and quiet and content, even as we're waiting for Christmas presents pretty soon. And if nothing else, we're trying to remember Christ in Christmas. These Advent and Christmas seasons get to be so overwhelming that it feels fortunate if we remember Jesus in this story. On one of the local Christian radio stations, a repeating blurb said something along the lines of, As Christians this Christmas, we need to rise up, to give hope, to share joy, to be kind, and so on, and so on, and so on. 
This five-second blurb seemed to go on interminably. I felt tired before listening to the radio, and then after I listened to this, I felt exhausted and overwhelmed by all of the things that I should do and should be, and, and I thought, wow, I love listening to positive and encouraging Christian radio. <laughs> if you and I were to count how many times we tell ourselves what we should and shouldn't do in a day, my guess is that we'd be pretty shocked. And then if we were to count how many times we made decisions based on what we thought we should or shouldn't do, I think we'd be no, likewise just as shocked. The voice of the shoulds, the needs, the have-tos, is not the voice of the Spirit. One of my personal cues for when I recognize I'm not listening to the voice of the Spirit is when I realize I'm making decisions based on what I think I should do or shouldn't do. And then I feel exhausted, weighed down, overwhelmed, and like the joy has been sucked out of my life. What seemed like the most obviously logical, kind, generous, and Christian thing to do was, in fact, undiscerning and based out of fear. In contrast, there are multiple signifiers when we are discerning correctly the voice of the Spirit. We may feel a lightness, a peace, an internal yes, a release of pent-up emotions, a lack of the need to control and an openness to God. Often there's also resonance with a trusted spiritual advisor, friend, or family member. Now, this is not to say that discerning the voice of God will always bring about pleasant outcomes. Take John, for example. He was imprisoned and beheaded. But the word of God was so clear to John that he was unconcerned about the many powerful forces around him. He knew exactly what he was called to do, and he did it. So he prepared the way for the Lord so that all people would see God's salvation. John didn't care to be particularly nice to the people who came to be baptized by him. He called them a brood of vipers and told them to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John expected that the Messiah would come and that it would be a dramatic day. Whoever didn't have their heart turned toward God and produce good fruit would be destroyed. The axe is already at the root of the trees, John said. The crowd, toll collectors, and soldiers are moved by John. They ask him what they should do. So should I just tell them what we just talked about, about should? Oh, what's interesting is that actually should isn't in the Greek. For some reason, the English translators added it in there. But a better translation would be something like, what are we to do, or what do we do? Now, to the hurried, there is no difference between the question, what should we do, and what are we to do, or what do we do? It sounds like an exercise of splitting hairs. But the truth is, it does make a difference which question you ask, because the motivations are entirely different. Should comes from the outside, a place of obligation, the idea being that you and I need to impose on ourselves to be good people and to do good things. In contrast, 
what are we to do or what do we do, is a question that's internally motivated. It's a question unconcerned with trying to look good or make oneself good. It's the question of a changed heart. It's the question of a person captivated and changed by God so that one cannot help but respond. Response bubbles over. This is why the popular slogan, Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth, is so problematic. If the Bible is primarily a book of instructions to tell you and me what we should and shouldn't do, we might as well give up now. Because how in the world are we going to keep and not keep this many things? But if the Bible's purpose instead is to show us who God is, who we are, and what God's purpose in the world is, then we're having an entirely different conversation. Our focus then is not on all of the things that we should and shouldn't do, but our focus is an honest recognition of our natural inclination and of our need for a Savior, that we are sinners and that we need a Savior as 1 John 1, 8, 9 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God's motivation to save, to forgive, is not motivated on our good actions. You and I can never do enough or earn enough to motivate God to save us. But out of God's great love for you and me, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die for, for us so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Our good works are then not only in response to the love of God in Christ. Our good works are the result of the spirit at work in us. We don't need to try to force ourselves to, to be good people or to do good things. The Holy Spirit is at work in us to accomplish God's purposes for us. As the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. So how do we know that the spirit is at work in us? We will see the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So as we prepare the way for the Lord this Advent season, may we do so with an open heart to the Spirit of God, alive and active in and among us. And the people walking in darkness will see a marvelous light. Glory to God in the highest. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, you are the one who always comes first to us. You are not dependent on what we do, and you are gracious even when we totally fail. We thank you for your faithfulness, and we thank you that we don't need to be ruled by a whole bunch of shoulds and shouldn'ts. 
but that your spirit is with us to lead us and guide us. So we pray that we would become more rightly discerning of your spirit and walk in the freedom that the spirit brings. We thank you for the gift of your presence and pray that even as we wait for that second advent of Jesus when he comes to make all things right, we pray that we would be agents bringing your light to the world so that all people will see your salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.